When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Podig O'Keefe was born in Glountorn, County Kerry, about 1888. Glountorn is a remote place in the mountains, about halfway between Castle Island and Ballydesmond. His father was the principal of the local national school, and his mother, Margaret O'Callaghan, came from a well-known musical family, the O'Callaghans of Dune, near Kisgame. Young O'Keefe spent many years of his childhood in O'Callaghans, and it was here that he first learned to play the fiddle. He trained as a primary teacher, and when his father died, he became principal teacher of Glountown National School. We learned nothing from him for the we were going to him, only to make clay pipes and bottles. And I learned to smoke. The only thing I kept from him was I was going to him for a couple of years, when he was teaching. When he was teaching after I left, which uh, I didn't know how long. So he was in the finish, the parents of the children objected to him and uh, got him shifted. And that him down to kill money. That a brother of mine got to Kilmarie. He was uh, about six or eight years younger than I was. A lot of men to Kilmarie. He used to be playing music for me, and we'd be dancing around the school, going all around. All the seats would be brought out in the centre, and we'd go all around, cross-stepping, all this kind of thing. Would it be true to say that your memories of school are of dancing all day to his music? Mostly, mostly. There was a, hardly any lesson. There was, there were also with the kiddie kids because we were confident like it previous to that because he, his father died there, we got our tickets and he was brought from college and put on the, the job teaching himself and his sister, Mrs. Canary. Patrick was a schoolmaster at Glownthorn, the national school, sometime before I met him, but he got tired of it and resigned. I'm told that one morning, after an all-night dance, he decided to walk into Castle Island to quench a devouring thirst he had. A lovely summer's morning, about six, and the birds singing around him, and why wouldn't he? Well, he was enjoying the pint, by all accounts, when the hackney man came in and told him the inspector was below, trying to hire the car to go out and inspect Glownthorn School, and he'd drive him out first and come back for the inspector. Padraig had had a set to with the same inspector about something or other, and he told the hackney man to take the inspector to inspect the school with my compliments, he said, and I hope he finds everything in order there because he won't find me there anymore. And that's how Padraig resigned from the job.
Well, this is the school where where O'Keefe taught. This is Lontaw National School, and uh, like his house, it is very dilapidated, windows broken, and the walls rotting, and the ceiling uh, rotting away. Now, the the school in fa- it's a, it's a, it's a two room school now. Just only one room at that time. Just a one room school. Yes, it's a one room at that time. Was, was, he, was it just a one teacher school? No, there was a two teacher school. He was the principal? He was the principal. I see. And his sister was here in the side, like, they were, they were, it was a mixed school. Oh, his sister taught with his him? His sister taught with him. Did she continue to teach after he well, she left? Did. She did, indeed. We'll just walk into the other rooms and just say hi. This is the school hall, anyway. In fact, this would be his, what he would be teaching, I would say, no, this would be his part of it. This is the, obviously the principal's yes, room this here. Is that, yes. Senior classes. Yes, senior classes. Well, it's a fine old school building, but it's very dilapidated and run down and sort of falling apart, really. Um, nothing on the desk, I suppose, is there? Some names here. Eileen Jones, maybe some relation of yours there. She was indeed. Yeah. Serious. Jimmy Connor. Willie, something or other. Nell Jones, 1971. After being removed from his post at Glountown, Padre got a job for a short period with the Ministry of Labour in Tralee. However, he didn't stick this very long and went back to his native place to become an itinerant teacher of music. It was as a teacher of the fiddle that he made a living for the rest of his life. Jerry Collins was one of his pupils. Well, I thought he was a great fiddler. To, to me, he was one of the best. And I don't think, Pat, that he ever really passed on any of his great tradition to his players. None of his pupils ever seemed to reach the standard even. There were great players. Undoubtedly, Dennis Murphy was a powerful player. Jerry McCarthy was a great player. Paddy Cronin was a great player in all of them. But he, any of them never seemed to have Keith, Keith's touch. No. He had this light bow hand and the beautiful rhythms he used to knock out of that fiddle. Even the man had never a fiddle. To me, he'd only a board. And still, he was able to knock beautiful music out, out of a board. What do you mean when you say he had only a board? Well, I had a fiddle myself, and when the great players came along of today, the present players, they only counted it as a board. It wasn't even a fiddle. I even got rid of it. And uh, I know it now from being playing good fiddles belong to other people. And uh, that man, you'd stay for hours listening to him when he was come to, t- to give me lessons at home by the fireside, playing that board even. So... I think he was marvellous. And against that then, he had a style of his own, you take... He, I thought he was a great traditional player because he played traditional music. Uh, carried traditional music anyway, as a matter of fact, because today you have these great players, there are several of them, and, and they use their boat a lot to make notes. It's beautiful music to listen to, we know, and we are listening to tonight, still listening to forever, but partly, would get 12 or 13 notes under one bow. He, he, kept, he convinced me all the time that you should use the bow at full length. 
and he got, uh, as I said, 12 or 13 notes under the one bow with a, with, uh, a couple of blue jeans thrown in his trill. And I thought he was great. And uh, he was pure genius in his regards music because he, he'd be often pinning a tune for me by the table and he'd have me playing the tune, the tunes I got this Sunday before, like. And uh, he'd be whistling away through his teeth and pinning the music for me. And he'd have me playing. And this day he said, uh, he stopped up and looked at me and he said, are you playing that as I pinned it? And I said, I think I am. I said, Padre, you are no such a thing, he said. You're after using a nook bow instead of a down bow. Well, until this day, I don't know the difference between an uproar or a downbow, but he did. course was the, the main teacher for the music that time and I decided that I'd bring him on anyway. So I, I re remember well the first night he came here to was a, a small Christmas Eve and uh, he said to me I'll write a half a tune for you first. So um, he wrote half a tune anyway and he showed me the way that I should go about it and uh, you're ahead no problem in the world because he wrote it in a simple way like in the figures do you know. I had no bother and he came then in about a furnace time again and had that half a tune up and he wrote two tunes for me the second time. So from that on then he was right every time he'd come he'd write from five to six tunes for me. He held that during the course of ten or twelve years. He'd come today and witness him for a fortnight after that again and it could happen that it should be a month or something, maybe a month. If you went on a bit of a tear or something. Yes, yes, that's right. Did that bother you in any way? <coughs> no. Never bothered me. Because if he didn't come, I could always meet him in Scattered Lynn anyway, and he'd write a few tunes for any place you'd meet him. At that time, at that age of the world, you had no music sheets that I remember anyway. They came in later, of course, about 10 or 12 years later, and he was getting a copy book, and he'd, he was to draw five lines about uh, less than an eighth of an inch, maybe 16th of an inch apart or something like that. And uh, uh, the five lines were representing four strings. And it was between the lines that he put the figures. But uh, I remember well the first time that he came to me, uh, he wrote the five lines, and I, I was all the time inclined to think that the five lines were the strings, do you see? So I was inclined to play on the strings, not between the lines. So he said to me, there are five lines there, he said. And I said he couldn't understand it well. And he said, how many, uh, how many ditches? He said, would it take to make four odds? So I said four ditches. No, he said to take five ditches to make four roads, representing the four strings of the fiddle, you see. So I got into it and straight away. Patrick never married. He called his fiddle the missus when he had one, and he told us what happened to a good fiddle he had once. The first wife, he said, one night at a spree after I played for a while, I was out at the gable end with some lads, and I was handed a mug of porter. I left her down dressed against the wall, and I forgot her. And later in the morning, didn't I find her there in the rain? She never did a day's good after that. 
The early O'Keefe recordings show a highly developed individual style, and part of his importance in the Schlievelugel tradition is as a stylist. He had two distinct real tempos, a lilting virtuoso and a galloping dance. He bored a lot or slurred a lot as taste dictated. His taste was impeccable and his touch clean. He told me he had his bowing system from the old Schlievelugel fiddlers, Tom Billy and Callaghan and others. I'm no expert on the bow, but I can remember Podrick finishing his fast music on the up bow, and I've noticed his pupils doing the same. This, of course, makes for a reversal in places, and I think it's the hallmark of the O'Keefe style. Podrick could read and write, both tonic sulfur and staff. Indeed, I have some of his manuscripts somewhere, and his penmanship was a picture to behold. He invented a system of writing down tunes for his pupils, which was ingenious, simple, and foolproof. He ruled four lines denoting the strings of the fiddle and indicated the notes to be played by the number of the finger, one, two, three, or four, on the fingerboard, and linked the notes to be played on one bow movement with an arc or a slur sign. Of course, Padraig was a well-read man, and not all our time together was devoted to music. personal friend of Dennis Murphy's and June Clifford, Tom Billy, I had met the most of them. But when I heard Padraig playing, I thought there was something in his music that nobody ever heard. Not saying but the rest were fairly good. But Padraig had something, whatever he was able to do as far as fingering in music was concerned, and the writing of music then being a teacher, of course, he had the education beyond us, we couldn't go up and down with Padre O'Keefe, nowhere in the world, but he had that influence in traditional music. I had been listening to records of Michael Coleman, James Morrison, Paddy Kilhorn, and then again when I turned around and heard Padre playing the same tune, I thought Padre influenced me more than anyone. Whatever was in his, he the real traditional art for traditional music. Going to skirt the Sunday evenings. Just when we get close to Lyons' pub, you could know exactly whose Padraig was playing, and there was a good few music- musicians going in there at the time. But for some reason, you could be down halfway of the village, you could know of Padraig's touch. He had a, he had a beautiful state for playing the old traditional air like. And I bet his music was something, something sweet. Very hard to describe style in this way, that while you might satisfy yourself about what you're saying, if you try and describe it to a person who's never heard it, or indeed might not have any interest whatsoever in the particular kind of music, 
has often struck me that what kind of elements would you pick out to describe and to let the other person be aware of the of the nature of the thing you were talking about with Porrig and with all the Schlieve Lucher music the first thing that struck me was the speed that's played at now I don't mean to play it too quickly but they did play at uh, a speed that struck me was demanded by dancing by people who were in the top of their health <laughs> you know that is there was a, a kind of a strain of excitement in the thing, kind of vigour in it. And you could hear, we say, a kind of an insistent beat in it. But at the same time, what struck me about Pawlik and about Dennis Burke indeed is that notwithstanding that, as it were, which is the, the first requisite, I think, of dance music, that you do get this strength, particularly in real playing, that there was a, a, a melodic touch in it too, um, a kind of a buoyancy in it, and that um, it, well, a feature that's common to Sligo and other music too, you see, uh, kind of coming very slightly to up to the note, as it were, it kind of gives us a, a further lift in it. But um, when I heard Porrick afterwards, like on the radio, the first time I must confess I was disappointed because it was a very late recording I heard playing in error and there was a kind of weakness in the thing, I str think. But afterwards then, when I heard the earlier recordings and that kind of thing, I, I knew, of course, I, that the reputation that I had heard of them was fully justified. Uh, another thing struck me about Porrick's playing was that it reminded me somehow or another of Patrick Kelly and Cree at Sinclair. And um, why naturally there was the traffic across the channel from one side to the other from Clare to Curry. Uh, there was even a more intimate connection between the two, but I've never heard anybody say that, you know, that they were able to produce a link, we say, Scanlon, from whom uh, uh, Patrick Kelly's music derived to some extent anyway, whether he was connected with Porrick or that, I don't know that. That brings us to the question, as a technician, how would you, how would you uh, compare him, say to, say, to a professional violinist, how technically good was he? from what you can gather from the, the tapes you've listened to? Um, really, it's a matter of taste, as it were. Um, I've heard, we say, Pastor Kelly, other people, you know, Dennis Murphy and these who were top fiddle players, and just curiosity, I used to ask them, what did they think of Coleman? Invariably, the answer among fiddle players was that they never heard any person better. There's no question at all of their thinking that somebody in Kerry was better than Coleman or somebody in Clare was, but he was regarded as the master altogether. Now, Piper's having quite the same opinion of Coleman that the fiddle players. They're not judging him on his technique as a fiddle player, though. It's that the, the music is not quite the way they have heard it, as it were. Uh, not the notes now, but there is something in it that differs somehow from piping and uh, on that account that they're not kind of as madly keen on Coleman say as uh, the fiddle players are. Well I suppose there's a certain spontaneity in folk music which uh, is, is an individualistic thing and 
uh, that the, the technical aspect sometimes that the the spontaneous aspect w would would override the technical aspect that that, that is more important that, that oh, there oh, should be this oh, it is indeed yes yeah it's the it's not how well the cake is made but how it tastes i mean it's really what counts He was a music master in the very old tradition and there were as many stories about him as there were about his kinsman, oh yes I think I'm sure he was, his kinsman owned Ruo Suluwain centuries before him. The stories were rather similar in form, many of them apocryphal I suppose, but as in all such cases adding up to that certain remote reverence in which a people hold those who have a particular talent and who take to the road, go to the fair and don't bother to come back like everyone else. They stray from the recognised path of righteousness and are forgiven because they have talent. O'Keefe's life as a teacher of the fiddle was precarious. He lived in what he made from the music lessons. And as his pupils were mostly in the mountainous districts around the villages of Guinea Bally Desmond, Knocknagree and Scartaglen. He was forever walking the narrow winding roads of this hilly country. There were houses along the road where he could stay the night and he would call on one of these when the pubs closed. Well, he was a very athletic looking man, Pat. He was a big, brave man. He used to always wear a, a big tweed cap and a black suit. The shirt with the you know, the stud button, and uh, he often arrived to me, you know, and it would start raining while he'd be talking or playing or having a cup of tea and writing, pinning down the tune for me. And then he'd say, I'd better be hitting the road. And naturally enough, I'd give him a few bob. Shillings were scarce at the time, but he liked the, the old bob, and I always gave it to him. And he thought a lot of me for that. When, he, if, when he'd start off to go if it was raining, he'd always take a safety pin from behind the cage of his coat and he'd turn them out like a donkey's hands around under his jaw and pin the coat and hit it for Castle Island. There was a fire in Lyons of Scartaglen, and that's where I first saw him, sitting near the wall on the right-hand side of the fire in a blue serge jacket that had looked good once. The long face, somewhat melancholy in repose, was deeply lined. The eyes lit up when he made one of his salty remarks on the human condition. And he never spoke outside of his own experience and a geographical world that stretched somewhere beyond Killarney. Truth to tell, he must have been well past his best when I met him, that is, as a musician, as a fiddler. What he had, of course, was a truly prodigious musical memory and a repertoire more extensive than, probably, anyone else around. At this stage, he had met and been recorded by every music lecture from here to the Midwest of America, and he took them all in stride. I lived alone here in Scattergate. I watched the old tailoring trade and all that kind of thing, Mike, and I lived alone for years, and uh, 
I'm only 200 yards from the village of Scatterlin, like, and when Patrick was dumped out of the public house and he was finished, like, and all this kind of thing, he'd, he'd have to foot at home about five miles to his native place, to Town, like, but he always visited my place, he generally, one night every week, and he was, like, he stayed with me, like, and we had to come home drunk together from the pub, like, you see, but, uh, uh, we slept together and all that kind of thing, like, and talked late into the night, talked after all night, you see. He always ate the breakfast with me in the morning and things like that. We heard he'd go and I'd give him a few old bob, half a crown or something like that, and, you know. But he'd have a great old tune or two for me, like, to understand. I used to play between the Ulan pipes, like, and uh, he, he'd have a great any tune I wanted or anything like that, like. But, uh, Sometime after I married him, like, I, you know, I lost contact with him then after marrying for a bit, like, you understand, but he would call in that time, but this evening he called, the sun was setting, the sun was setting back and we were, you know, standing in front of my door and we were looking back over the Schleimisch Mountains and the sun was setting and we were talking, but he had this little tag, uh, he put it out of his pocket and uh, uh, he handed it to me, like, it was like a tag up a shirt or something like that, but that was, I looked at it anyway, the, the rest of the people that were there, there was two or three more there standing and I didn't see what was happening at all, but there was, I see, five shillings matting, like, and I know what that meant, like, you see. It was the only thing he ever did ask me for anything, like, but, uh, you know, I put my hand in my pocket and I felt around and I found the two half crowns and I handed him, quite did him, like, and after a time we talked away and he moved away again down back for the village. But uh, I suppose it was two or three weeks after, one day in the town of Cash Island, like, he was in a pub, I suppose, or something like that, but he see my missus passing, like, and uh, <coughs> he came out and he called her and, you know, he said, I'm going to deal with Colleen, he said, I'm going to deal with Colleen, I want to one minute. You see, and she didn't know, you know, what he wanted, but he handed her this five shillings, like, and he said, did that uh, Johnny, you know, go home? And first this far, and when you said, never mind what as far we'd give it him, you see? That was Patrick, like, you know, he had that, he, he was a man of real principle, like. would be coming on to Scatterglin in the evening, like, and, uh, you know, he'd have an old dog with him, like, to understand, like, and he looked after him, be tattered, and he'd have the, the pint of the lapel there shoved out to the bottom of the coat, and he'd have it up around him, like, to understand, but that was some of the teachers here that him that didn't like Patrick either, because he, like, he, he you know, he made a kind of a, you know, bad uh, down there, you know, their... Their image. Their image, like, and, uh, you know, uh, that you know, they, they'd, be, they'd be taking their wives along the road walking, you know, for a walk after school and they'd meet Patrick. That would more or less await him, do you understand? But still, then people are all dead, God be good to him, like. They're forgotten today, you'll never hear their names mentioned, but Patrick, his name will live for generations to come, I expect, like. O'Keefe is one of the great carriers of the Schlieve Lucre tradition. He is the link man from Tom Billy Murphy, the turn of the century fiddle master from Ballydesmond. O'Keefe brought the rich repertoire of dance music and slow airs right into the middle of the 20th century. He did this 
by passing on the music to his pupils and fellow musicians. Well, all the... He had, we say, he had advantages in both ways. There are at least uh, very high qualities in the in the reeds he had. We say the dune reed comes to mind, and those they were uh, strong melodically, as it were. They weren't just skeletons that you come across in other places. They were well ornamented, well uh, varied, and that. And at the same time, too, he had, I think, the the real attractive feature, I think, of monster music are the jigs, the old jigs are some kind of a persuasive kind of attraction about them, and Pauling had a great deal of those. Uh, a thing too struck me, saying the rising sun and there are other reads to the morning star and those that Pauling plays, and, and other people, of course, that have commented on the monster too, that there is a, a little wee streak of loneliness or... or uh, I don't know, not sorrow, but there is that... Melancholia. Melancholy, yes, that is really the word. That is evident in some of these things, and you get, you know, you're caught up that they are uh, tunes to be humoured in that way of playing, even though they don't lose their attraction when they are being hammered out, we say, for a, a set. But there is that other attraction that you can listen to them afterwards, and... Uh, I find them very appealing, as it were. I never knew him to have a fiddle. I suppose he must have had, long ago. There seemed to be one permanently in Lions of Scartiglin, his maybe. But elsewhere, he just reached out his hand and took the nearest. Dennis Murphy described himself as a pupil of his. So did Jerry McCarthy. And you can still hear him in the melodion playing of Johnny Leary. Of the tunes you have today, and you, ha you must have as many as probably anybody in your own way, uh, how many of these would you say, in one way or another, you can trace back to O'Keefe? I mean, some you'd have got from Dennis Murphy, with whom you played for a long, yeah, long time. Yeah. And you'd have got some, I suppose, from Julia Clifford. But yeah. how many would you say go back to O'Keefe, being the kind of the primary source, if you like, of the music? I suppose the majority of them, because... It's what music I got from Dennis Murphy and Julie Clifford as part of father, because they're giving those to us, Dennis and Julie. They got a few from their father, definitely. Their father was a brilliant counter-flute parent in Whistler. But I, I would say the majority of them would belong to great reputations and they had a tune for every day of the week, you see, which was 365, unless it was leap year, of course, you see. And uh, it's not to be taken that somebody counted them, but uh, 
300, 400 is not, you know, it's not an exaggeration at all for a good player. I knew Sonny Brogan years ago had stopped noting down the names of the reels he knew when he had reached 300. And he was still certain, of course, that there were more. Uh, Paulie now would have been in that class that I suppose he could have played up to 400 or more anyway. In the 20s and 30s and right up to the late 40s, house dancing was a feature of life in all of Schlieve There was no television, the cinema had just about made its appearance, and only the occasional house had a radio set. But the people had their music and their dances. In some districts there were house dances seven nights of the week, and the local fiddlers and musicians played for these, as they did for the crossroad dances, the American wakes and the raffles. The dance aspect is very important in this sleeve lucre tradition. The number of dance tunes easily make up the major section in the corpus of the music and give it its most distinguishing characteristic. Well, house dancing in this locality is existed as long as I remember it. When I was a mere young fella, uh, all over the locality there was house dances every night. Uh, we live in an area here in Schlieve-Lucre where uh, quite a lot of our young people had immigrated in the early part of the century. And these occasions meant having dances before they went to America or Australia or any other country. They went and those were known as American Wakes. Now they were big uh, nights of dancing and music. Then you also had um, raffles which was carried on in this part of the country and you had biddy dances and any occasions such as threshing machines and so on and so forth and all the occasions were, uh, were occasions for house dancing. So we had, to, as I say, when I was growing up, uh, we had to dance seven nights of the week in different houses around the locality. Scattered throughout the locality? Scattered around throughout the locality. What was the purpose of the raffles? Well, the purpose of the raffles mostly were, at that particular time, there was no such thing as um, dole or, uh, we'll say, social security or social welfare. And mm-hmm. after a poor man rearing a big family needed a, a certain amount of money that would tidy him over the Christmas to buy the Christmas. So they usually ran a dance and you paid going in and you got bread or tea during the night and that dance went on into the morning and the result was maybe there would be maybe 10 or 15 pound would be collected that night and would be given to the poor family. That was the idea of the raffle in my time. I've always felt that the music, to some extent, reflects the character of the people. Um, especially, I'm thinking of the, the, the dance music, the sets, uh, the, the polka music, uh, the slides and so on. Um, and that there's a quality in it that isn't even Christian. There's a certain sort of uh, pagan, Rabelaisian sort of quality in it. 
And well, in the dances themselves too. Well, in the dance, well, not so much we say in in the actual form of the quadrille, as it were. That's a, a civilized kind of a thing. It's, it's you might say it's mathematically or structurally a simple thing. But in the way it's, we say the way it stands, the way I saw it danced in Kerry or saw sets in Clare, that did remind me that maybe the parish priests had some little reading on this side, that there is a kind of an animalism in this thing, and in a good state of excitement, you, the, that brings out the music also, and the operation of the two interacting together makes a, a few occasions I can, you know, I can still feel a kind of a, a thrill from having looked and seen and heard music. But I'm afraid, generally, that that height excitement, that thing, is, is notably absent. Play music good, you want to be good physical strength, good form, and that kind of thing. It struck me that the reason why I wasn't depressed the first time I heard it, it was an error. Well, uh, I thought Paul had difficulty in keeping the bow on the string even, so that he, uh, I'm not sure when it was made, but certainly he wasn't in the, the prime of life. And it was only when I heard the other ones that, you know, I felt well, really, the reputation was justified. O'Keefe lived a hard life drinking and playing late into the night, and not always eating proper meals. Nor did he change his way of life with old age. He continued to drink and walk miles and miles of bog road from village to village. Death caught up with him in the black winter of 1963. His friends and neighbours had noticed that his health had failed, and when he became ill in February 1963, he was taken to the county hospital in Tralee. It was here he died. His funeral was one of the biggest ever seen in Scartaglen, and he was buried in the old graveyard of Kilmurray. Here in Kilmurray, that is the old family plot of the O'Keefe's. And to see here, John O'Leahy O'Keefe in Teagloontown National School, who died in May the 1st, 1905. And his wife, Margaret O'Keefe, Nee Callahan, died in November the 14th, 1938. Their daughter Molly died in July the 11th, 1908. Son John died in Chicago on July the 24th, 1927. And their son Patrick died in February the 22nd, 1963. That was a well-known musician, the late Patrick O'Keefe. So it's here in this grave he is buried. Daniel Cockery had a story, short story called the Bulgarian, about a return gank who went on and on about the singing of Count John McCormick. And when the polite and bitchy women reminded him that they had the glorious voice of McCormick on a gramophone record there and then, he dismissed it and said, I want to see him sing. Now the recordings we have of Keefe do not, I think myself, reproduce him at his best. But even if they did, I would still want to see him play in Scart or in the back room of Tom McCarthy's in the broad main street of Castle Island.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.